Today's sponsor is Stamps.com. Avoid trips to the post office. Use Stamps.com to buy and print official U.S. postage right from your computer. Go to Stamps.com today and sign up for a special offer. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in decode. Today is also sponsored by Audible.com, which has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free audiobook of your choice at audible.com slash decode. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the consigliere for the PayPal Mafia, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about Silicon Valley's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. Today in the red chair, we have Max Levshin, a serial entrepreneur who co-founded PayPal and is an investor in companies like Yelp and Evernote. He recently founded HVF, which stands for Hard Valuable Fun, and one of these companies he's now running, a firm which is trying to build the modern-day bank. He's also recently been a board member at Yahoo, so you know I'll ask him a few things about this, and he'll say nothing. Welcome, Max. Thank you. Thank you. You can say no comment right now to start with. Surprise me with something I can say. All right. Okay, to. great. First, we're going to talk about a firm and HVF. Talk a little bit about your background a little bit. People do know who you are, but you've done lots of companies. My background, going all the way back to sort of how I identify myself as a computer scientist with a fairly specific focus on security and data, mm-hmm. data security, if you will. And so every few years, I kind of go back to my roots and try to think up some ideas around data, data mining, data value extraction, and everything I've built of any seriousness typically goes back to that. So if you sort of trace my checkered past through its stops, you will see that there's one strong theme. I love data. I love making sense of it. I love extracting value from it. So everything from PayPal, where we extracted value from transactional data on eBay and made transactions and commerce easier to Yelp, which was one of my proudest investments, where we took old school data of yellow pages type and made it into an online, beautiful consumer powered review business, all the way out to HVF, which was created as an incubation lab for data driven company ideas to Affirm, which is what I work on today, which is essentially an attempt to modernize finance and consumer banking for the modern mobile smartphone-powered age. Again, using data as the primary fuel to really extract new value to be created here. Okay, let's go back into your checkered past. Now, we're going to talk about a firm and how you're going to do that and why you want to you know, remake the modern bank. A lot of people think finance is one, the one area that suddenly is getting a lot of attention in Silicon Valley. It is, for some reason, um, that should be disrupted immediately. There's lots of companies in the area. But let's talk a little bit about your background. You, you were born in... I was born in Ukraine. That's right, yeah. And how did you get here? What was your journey? We have a lot of entrepreneurs listening, and they always like to understand people's journey. Born in Kiev, Ukraine, and my family actually, unbeknownst to me, I'll have you know, uh, applied for a political asylum in the United States in all the way back in the 80s, mm-hmm. but were only allowed out in the very early 90s. So literally two weeks before Soviet Union broke up in two tiny little parts, we picked up and left and landed in Chicago. And what? How old were you at this point? Just turned 16. 16. So did you speak English well or did you? Yeah. My, you my parents, apparently, again, this all sort of came to me fairly mm-hmm. rapidly as they told me, by the way, pack up, we're going to America. I, I literally found out several months before we left up until that point. Did I you had, want to go to America? I was actually very excited. I was mm-hmm. a nerd. I had a very limited number of friends and I thought, you know, 
I'm certainly not. Aren't, an isn't Russia full of nerds? I thought that it was. First of all, Ukraine. Russia. I'm sorry. Uh, sorry, Ukraine. Um, back when I was there, there the was Soviet very Union. little difference. Soviet yeah. Union, exactly. Um, yeah, there. You know, I was in one of these tracked high schools where we were nerding out together. I, I you know, I, I was sad to leave. I, I did have some friends, but I was also very excited because I started to become conscious of sort of startups and capitalism and. Most importantly, at the time, I was just excited to have access to faster and better computers. So mm-hmm. I was actually quite thrilled. How did you get into computers? A lot of entrepreneurs listen to this program. They sort of want to understand someone's journey and roots. Yeah. So cool story. My mom worked as a research scientist at a food safety lab in a nutritional institute of research or something rather. This is 1986. Mm-hmm. Right around the time the Chernobyl accident happens about 90 miles north of Kiev, she starts getting these loaves of bread that need to be measured for radioactive poisoning. Uh-huh. And which is how my family found out something was desperately wrong. And so they shipped me and my brother about a thousand miles south to stay off the radioactive clouds. But when we got back, my mom was told by her lab director that even though she is a metrology specialist, which is the science that deals with precision equipment and calibrating things, mm-hmm. et cetera, she's going to become a computer programmer now because no one else is available. And she recruited me to help her learn how to code. So we had a um, classic text in computer science called uh, Algorithms Plus Data Structures Equals Programming by this guy, Niklaus Wyeth, who invented and designed the Pascal programming language. And it's a mm-hmm. classic book written in Pas- about Pascal, which I had read about a thousand times in Russian. Mm-hmm. And uh, from that from there, he did. Yeah. And what attracted you to it? What was your interest in it? It was like crack. I, like first time I wrote a piece of code that you could type, 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 hit compile, run, and this thing on the screen does what you told it to do. It was like, wow, power. Why? Why? Power. Just sense of, if you look at this device, and, you know, especially if you're a 12-year-old, it's complicated. So these are like Soviet clones of American equipment. So I think I started programming on a DVK, which is a PDP-11 clone made in Soviet states, and a Robotron, which was a, um, kind of a ZX-style machine. And both of these things were... They were not designed for pretty. They were designed for functional. And so you look at it, it's like this industrial equipment that no mortal is supposed to control. Right. And then, you know, this scrawny 12-year-old sits down, types a so bunch power. of code. Max Sense likes of power. control uh-huh. over machinery. Machinery. Okay. So you get to the United States and you're 16. What do you do? I go to a regular high school and I chill out for two years because I am fairly well ahead of the uh, the average curve. And then I try to apply to a university called MTI, which mm-hmm. I'd read about in Russian, which of mm-hmm. course is MIT, but <laughs> I mis- misunderstood the translation. And as a consolation prize, so no one could tell me that MTI was MIT. And so uh-huh. I was sort of like, well, if it doesn't exist, it doesn't exist. So I applied to University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, which was conveniently three-hour drive from my parents' house, which was just far enough away, and went there in computer science. And this is years 1993 now and so in 95 the world explodes and becomes and and, you know founded on campus so I got the front row seat to what was going to be right which was right there yeah did you know Mark Andreessen then no very very slightly Mm -hmm. we overlapped there was this one place called Wonder Dogs you had hair then remember uh no I I, you don't remember I don't remember that part I I, I just remember uh, Wonder Dogs where he liked his hot dogs there and so did I Okay, so you were eating. But he's a little bit older, so we overlapped very slightly. And then yeah. he left to go. So what school. what brought you to Silicon Valley? How did you get here? So I started my first company on campus, mm-hmm. and that failed after about a year. And then I started another one. What that was failed. the company? It's called Sponsor Net New Media. It was actually literally 
the very first or one of the very first banner advertising networks. This is okay. like back in the day when yeah, yeah. banner ads were cool. Yeah. And it totally failed because we were in Champaign-Urbana and had no idea what we were doing. But it was pretty cool and uh, fun while it lasted. It failed. All of my co-founders, say for one, dropped out of school and moved to Palo Alto because that's clearly where the other banner ad networks that were getting venture capital and actually succeeding were all happening. So they kept on emailing me saying, hey, you know, you need to the get campaign out is cold and not really easy to get right. funding in and we're in Palo Alto and it's pretty awesome. So my immigrant family told me, if you don't graduate, we're going to disown you. And I said, fine, I'll graduate, but then I'll move out. And right. so I, I graduated and moved And you moved out. So you first started working on a number of projects, but you got to PayPal relatively quickly, correct? Yeah. So by the time I got to Palo Alto, I'd already failed a couple more times. Mm-hmm. And I had realized that, so first of all, my sort of passion in college really zeroed in and around cryptography and data security, just that was what I, I really wanted to do. Before I decided to be an entrepreneur, I wanted to go get a PhD in crypto. And so as I moved to Palo Alto, I still was kind of brewing up all these schemes of combining entrepreneurship, which I already liked and got a taste of in college, with crypto. So I met this guy, Peter Thiel, at a lecture that he gave at Stanford on currency trading, of all things. And he asked me, what are you working on? I said, oh, you know, I start companies and I typically fail, but I'm going to go start another one because I'm crazy like that. I said, well, we should have breakfast. And so we had breakfast the next morning. I said, I have these two ideas. One was this kind of weird advertising related idea after I put my first startup. And the other one was this data security for handheld devices idea, which was full 20 years before its time. But mm-hmm. Palm Pilots were all the rage and I wanted to encrypt everything on your Palm Pilot. And he said, that sounds wacky enough and hard enough where there's not that many people competing in that space. You should go do that. So mm-hmm. I said, fine, you know, I, I don't really care. I just want to go start a company. And so I started that. We called it Confinity. And then for the next three or four months, I tried to grapple with the idea that I don't really want to run it. I wanted to go write a bunch of code. Mm-hmm. And so I started trying to talk Peter into becoming our CEO. And mm-hmm. so 1199 was when Confinity was officially incorporated with me as the CTO and Peter as the CEO. And Confinity became PayPal shortly thereafter. Surely. How did that switch? So we built this encrypt stuff on your Palm Pilot. Nobody cared. We tried a bunch of other things. Nobody cared. At some point, Peter and his friend Reed Hoffman, now of LinkedIn fame, were brainstorming about what else can you do with security cryptography on your handheld device. And maybe about six people in the room, so there's really no one person to take the credit. But someone said, hey, it might as well be a digital wallet. Why don't we put money in there? And the original version... Do you remember who said it? No, because I just remember... I mean. One of these things where you go back and reconstruct the story and there's always some new wrinkle with everybody who recalls themselves being in that room. I can name at least a few people who were definitely there. Yeah. But But many people who were not. There's several others that are claiming to be there as well now. But, you know, success has a thousand fathers. Yeah. But uh, Reed was definitely very active in those. And this was not just one conversation. There were dozens of conversations. So, you know, Peter was there and Ken Howery now at Founders Fund was there and Luke Nosek now at Founders Fund was there. Reed was there. I was there. That's okay. Uh, you don't have to do that. Yeah, so, so, you know, so, these, so, these people are all the concept, you really hit on something important, uh, that it was that this digital wallet, although it was much earlier, there was Elon was doing X. Um, uh, and you guys were kind of very angry rivals at each other, if I remember at the time. So the X rivalry is a little bit later in the timeline. Yeah. So the sort of decision to go into encrypting money, as we thought right. of it at the time, we were still in this universe of you know only paying attention to ourselves. We didn't really realize anyone else was working on anything uh-huh. else at all. Uh, we were in, so we'd just gotten our first office, 394 University Avenue, I think Suite B. Suite A was this mm-hmm. company called X.com. Mm-hmm. We were literally in the same building on the same floor. Right. 
and Elon was running X, and they two were examining financial services and banking and payments, and we had no idea about each other until we started realizing that the guys next door were taking really strong interest in us, and we started taking strong interest in them, and we mm-hmm. realized we're basically working on kind of the same thing. So physical proximity and being very competitive, and by then we both launched, and we had right. payment systems, and and then it became quite a bloody competition. Yeah, it was the sharks versus the jets, except nerds. Right. It's from West Side Story. I, I know. I'm that. trying to figure out like okay. which part does you yeah. know, map to physical yeah. violence. So, uh, so we're gonna we're gonna take a break for a second, but I want to get to the idea of how you create something that creates that much influence so quickly, and then we'll move on to what you're doing now. So sometimes it feels like there aren't enough hours in the day, even when you're working past the nine to five. So if you're still making time-consuming trips to the post office, you need a better way. With Stamps.com, you can get postage you need the instant you need it. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter package right from your computer and printer. It's quick and easy. It's just a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use my promo code DECODE for a special offer. A four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. Get started with Stamps.com today. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in DECODE. That's Stamps.com, and enter DECODE. We're here with Max Lovshin, who is one of Silicon Valley's most active entrepreneurs and, and investors. He's been around the block. He was one of the founders of PayPal. He's done all kinds of things, including a new company called Affirm, which is trying to change the modern banking system into something else. Um, we're talking a little bit of his background at PayPal. I'm going to jump forward. So you, PayPal was relatively successful, but still hard. Like it's got this mythology now of the PayPal mafia and they all went off to do different things. Why do you think that's the mythology is correct? Do you think you're all, why did that grow up around PayPal? So it's actually, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So the notion of this magical university where you go and graduate and become an amazing entrepreneur is completely fraudulent, of course. Like mm-hmm. You can't mint entrepreneurs in demand, otherwise everybody mm-hmm. would just be doing it. But what we did do is when we interviewed especially early people, we had very actively searched for people that would say, hey, this is my last job. I'm here to learn how to start companies. Mm-hmm. After this, success or failure, I don't care. I'm going to go start my own. This is the last thing I'm going to do where I am not the guy in charge or the girl in charge. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence, of course, the early group of PayPalians was just stacked with all these people who were basically just waiting for a chance to go and jump out and do their own thing. And so many of the typical successful startups or include people that say, oh, you know, I finally made my million dollars. I can go on a two-year break or buy my yacht. And lots of early PayPal people said, this is my cue. I'm going to go take half the money I made and pour it down my startup idea and this is, this is my shot. So as a consequence, yes, you see this huge group of people that just started companies. After so companies. you ended up, after this fight with Elon and X, he became part of your company? Uh, we merged 50-50. Fight, yeah. After this bloody fight, mm-hmm. which surprised a lot of people at the time, I think. Um, it's kind of a hallmark of rational people to, right. at a certain point, Stop say, competing. why are we beating the crap out of each other when there's this huge market out there for the taking? And a third party will undoubtedly come along and run us both but out of town. But one of the greatest successes is in selling it. Correct or not? Do you feel like you that that was a critical move to sell to eBay? Or um, you know, it's a again a controversial story. So 15 years ago when it took place, it was probably somewhat controversial, and it's again controversial because at this point the market has properly valued PayPal and it's worth billions and billions of dollars, tens of billions in fact. And the question is, could we have gotten right. here at where it is today independently or not? And the honest answer is probably not. The, so the, the next beating, the next sort of battle took place between the combined PayPal and eBay. eBay was dependent on PayPal, but PayPal was dependent on eBay. And so power sellers 
processed majority of their payments through PayPal, but at any given point, eBay had their own payment system they wanted them to try. They were not excited about integrating with us because they didn't have any upside in the story. So the fact that we finally decided to merge forces with eBay was definitely a huge sigh of relief on both companies, but also the user base suddenly benefited tremendously because all the features that we had couldn't do or had to do clandestinely, eBay was now very happy to right. help us do. Right, and you all then became sort of legendary. You moved on to different companies. Uh, yours was a company I always used to make fun of all the time. Do you remember? How can I forget? Yes, exactly. It was a sheep-throwing company, correct? Or a gaming company? We, we call it an entertainment and media company, but yes. Okay, it, it all right. It had a brief... Uh, detour into sheep throwing. Yes, exactly. And you sold it to Google. Again, another sale. And meanwhile, you were investing, you'd made all this money and stuff like that. What did you imagine, you know, when you went off into that, you went to Google, did you imagine you were going to stay there? Same thing with eBay. You didn't, obviously. Very different. So at eBay, I knew my days were numbered, but I had an extreme sense of loyalty to my team. And so Mm -hmm. I never wanted to work at a large company. I never had a sort of a vision of working my own my way up the corporate ladder. I wanted to go start more companies. I was 28, so definitely had lots of energy. But my team was there. A lot of these guys I went to high school with, college with, so I wasn't going to go anywhere until the place felt like it was in really good shape, good hands. And Meg, to her credit, at some point said, look, you're kind of hanging around here because you're worried about your baby and your babies. You're welcome to let go. Like We'll take good care of it. And so Mm -hmm. I left eBay on good terms, and it was fine. Google was very different in the sense that we were acquired in part because Google was really ramping up their interest in social media. Right. They had this very specific mission. They were quite concerned about the rise of the other social media giants in the, in the space. And so they wanted a team that understood what was happening in the space, that had vested interest in the space. As we came in, I was actually quite prepared to stick around for a very long time because the way I sort of envisioned it, we would come in and be this division within Google that kind of executed on its social mission the alphabet transmogrification that's taking place now is actually very similar to the conversations that mm-hmm. I had with Larry and mm-hmm. Eric and Sergey back in the day when they were trying to figure out a construct where entrepreneurial teams within Google could execute almost without constraints, the oversight. But it took four years for them to actually get there. Or, yeah, well, over four years. And so mm-hmm. I left largely because I realized that even though they were going there, I was going to have to wait for them to come around to a structure that made sense for existing business. and Also a lot of infighting and, and things like that there, if I recall. Um, not with me. I was very insulated. Even mm-hmm. though they never quite developed the alphabet structure while I was there, the competition was going on. Everybody was thrilled to discuss it and try to work with it. In practice, there was an enormous amount of vested interest and a giant business that has to be maintained. So you sure. can experiment all you like, but if you have a a money mint in a backyard, you have to maintain the, uh, the money mint. So there's some... How do you assess how they've done in social media since then? Not terrifically well. I think some of the things they thought were kind of do or die goals mm-hmm. are certainly no longer that for them today. And so in areas where they thought they had to win to remain competitive, if I had to guess, at least half of them are no longer perceived as such. But I've not been on Google campus, let alone in Google. Right. Well, they're not very social people. I can't imagine them being successful at creating anything Some of them are fantastically social Really, they're not. They're really not, for the most part. I'm friends with a lot of them. I understand that, but, you know, you're in your own little world. You you all are. But in any case, it was not an area they ended up pursuing as much as other areas. So you're free. You decide to do 
HVF, mm-hmm. and and then ultimately Affirm, and you did Glow, and you've done a bunch of companies. What was the idea behind HVF? And then let's get into Affirm. So after this, apropos your swipe at slide. Yes. Um, so slide, after I've even forgotten the name. Yeah. Well. Throw the sheep. Yep. Um, so after I left Google, I asked my wife to help me think of my next act. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, I have one simple advice for you. Do things you're good at and don't pretend. Right. Said, Were you hmm, pretending? That, I thought I wasn't. I yeah. said, well, how do you describe yourself? Like, what's the one word that comes to mind when you think of yourself? I said, I don't know. Nerd, cryptographer, computer. She's like, serious. You're a serious guy. Right. Like this whole sheep throwing thing right. is not you. You were pretending all these years to really care about games, but I've never seen you play a video game until you started Slide, and I've never seen you play since the day you sold the company. Your wife is wise. She is very wise. And so I said, all right, so if I'm the serious guy, and I don't know if I made myself this way or I just am this way, I need to sit down and sort of think what that means. And I wrote an essay for myself that mm-hmm. eventually made some rounds on the internet called Hard Valuable Fun. And I try to outline what a person such as myself or myself specifically would really do well. Like, what am I suitable for given my predilection for entrepreneurship? And I like fun, but for me, fun is solving puzzles. Mm -hmm. And puzzles have to be hard enough because otherwise I'm just not really going to enjoy myself. But this is a lesson from Peter from many years ago. Back in the PayPal days, he said, you know, we were debating something. He said, look, why do you think this is, this is a good idea to do? I said, well, it's really hard. He said, mm-hmm. hard does not imply valuable. Valuable typically implies hard, but the implication doesn't go the other way every time. You can beat your head against the wall, but the wall might not give. But even if it does, you ha- will have gained nothing. You would just right. broken your head or broken the wall. So, so, hmm, so it's a good reminder. Hard, valuable, has to be for something, and I need to enjoy it. I need to be passionate about it. And so we started HVF as kind of a placeholder project for HVF-ish ideas to come out. And this data and security and math obsession was kind of at the core. Right. Spent about a year grasping at straws of ideas. And right around the same time, basically thought of, you know, for a while I was very, I don't want to go back to finance. I don't really want to touch payments. I've done that in right. of my 20s. But there, here I, you are. And here I am. And so I, I kept on putting that into the maybe we'll get to it later. But meanwhile, I was really excited about health. Mm-hmm. And I started talking to a friend of mine, Mike, who ran a large portion of Slide for me about healthcare and using data to improve health and quantify itself and all these trends. And eventually we settled on this idea of combining healthcare and data in an area of healthcare that just doesn't get a lot of sunlight, namely fertility. So fertility and reproductive health for women is under-researched, under-funded, under-talked about. It's always a taboo subject in all kinds of ways. And so we launched Glow Mm -hmm. and Mike and his team, which I knew for years at Slide, were kind of a ready-made bunch of guys and girls. It's actually a very heavily women-populated team for, for obvious reasons. You know what? And they're not based in Silicon Valley. They're based in Shanghai. Mm-hmm. So it's a very different dynamic. But um, anyway, so Glow is there. They're up to um, three very large, very rapidly growing apps. They're about to launch another one very soon. So it's And the concept is to use data to help you get pregnant. Yeah. So right. they, they use data and sort of techniques from Quantify itself. Both. And how is it doing? It is doing fantastically. I think um, we're expecting 150,000 babies to be born some in the next six months or so from Glow Mothers, mm-hmm. women who have self-identified as having a difficult time conceiving. Uh, we have a 
something like a 90% conversion from women that we help get pregnant to women that track their pregnancies with Glow Nurture, which is the pregnancy app we launched a year ago. And we just launched Eve by Glow, which is a health and sex ed app for younger girls. So it Mm -hmm. covers 13 to something like 25. And we have one more still in the same vein coming. And so that's within HVF, but the one that you we got, spun it out. It's yeah, a separate company. Out. Yeah, right. And you're on the board, or you're. I am chairman of the board. I'm right. pretty active, but it's a full. Full. But what full you've team. decided to put all your attention. You've come off of boards to do a firm. That's Let's right. talk very quickly what it does and why you decided this. Because you're back in payments again. You're back in. So I'm back in credit, I'm okay. financial services. But so four or five years ago, I looked at the FICO score, and, mm-hmm. which is the score that determines. Everybody hates the FICO score. Few people really know how it works because it's mm-hmm. kept secret. Banks don't really like the FICO score, but it's a kind of a symptom of a bigger problem. The interesting thing about finance is that finance as an industry used computers well before many other industries have gotten onto this whole software eating the world track. So if you look 10 years ago, finance and bankers would tell you, oh, we're completely softwareized. We're like digital. We have mainframes everywhere. It's amazing. And taxis were on phones and dispatch and all Mm -hmm. that stuff. Today, taxis are being eaten up by Uber, the largest taxi cab company just filed or talking about filing for bankruptcy in San mm-hmm. Francisco. Bankers are still on their software, but it was all built in the 70s. So the disruption that was very early in finance has never really had a second coming today. And so things like FICO, which is a very simple model of your credit that updates very infrequently, all the way down to the mobile experience you have with your phone when you're talking to your favorite brick and mortar bank, are all kind of stuck in the 70s and 80s. And so there's this huge opportunity to just rebuild that and have software one more time. So it begins with giving you a different credit score based on other things, not not you didn't pay your bills, essentially. Well, that's actually not a bad way of predicting what you'll do with another bill. It's just what do you do with that information? How quickly do you rescore? And also what sort of attitude do you take towards the money? And so today, I would argue most banks, but certainly vast majority have a fundamental misalignment of incentives with their customers. Mm-hmm. If you look at the profitability breakdown of your typical credit card issuing bank, a tremendous part of their profits come from late fees. In other words, the more you behave irresponsibly, the more you do things that you really shouldn't be doing, the more they like it. The more they like it. So as far as a customer service provider relationship goes, that is about the worst way of organizing because they don't want you to be broke But they want you to be late. They would like for you to be hit with late fees and other kinds of occasional value transfers from you to them. And so what we wanted to do is just uproot the whole thing, build a product that is always aligned with consumers' best interest, not necessarily just the shortest term best interest, but something that will help them build their credit rating, something that will help them manage their money more intelligently, something that will never land them in debt they cannot service. Mm -hmm. And so that's what the idea of a firm came from. We started with very simple service, literally just saying, hey, we will help you finance a large purchase by creating a loan, just like a simple And creating a profile online. Mm -hmm. All right, we'll be finishing talking about that in a second. If you're always on the go like myself and don't have time to sit down and read, audible.com is a great source to be able to catch up on the latest bestsellers. Listen to All on the Road or at the Gym. Audible.com is a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Audible carries audiobooks in every genre imaginable business, classics, history, and self development, just to name a few. Max, what should I listen to next? So I'm a huge 
fan of Audible.com. This, okay. this, this is not a. Okay. Uh, I'm not shilling. We for only your have good sponsors. sponsors. That is probably true, yeah. but uh, I happen to have an enormous Audible collection. So I'm a closet spy novel reader. Mm-hmm. So I have. You're Russian. More... That's not a surprise. Ukrainian. I mean, sorry. You know, I'm I'm an American. Give me a spy novel. Actually, a great spy novel is The Sympathizer. So this okay. is a fantastic novel, and it's actually gotten a lot of attention and it seems to have fallen off the press list. So I, I hope everybody reads All it. All right, but The Sympathizer. Sympathizer by Viet Dan Nguyen. All right, then. It's available on Audible. Fantastic. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash decode and choose from over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash decode. That's audible.com slash decode and get started today. We're here with Max Levshin, Silicon Valley serial entrepreneur and investor. We're talking about a firm where he's trying to change the banking system now. He had been one of the founders of PayPal. I want to finish talking about a firm. Is Why has the banking industry taken so long? I mean, it seems like the innovations happened so long ago and then just stopped. What is the Giant problem? Giant profit margins. Mm-hmm. Why change something that just mints money? Mm-hmm. For the yeah. banks, on the part of the banks. Yeah. There's an enormous amount of wealth being generated every day in banking. The system Do you think it's consumer resistance to using these things? Because people are slow. Ex- with the, I mean, Google's tried. Apple's been trying. So it's everyone's- an extraordinarily difficult thing to switch. Mm-hmm. So if you are past a certain age, you have enough roots that you've given into the banking system. You might hate your bank, but you're not going to switch it just because you don't like it that day. Mm-hmm. Even if you've been slammed with late fees and whatever. It's just, it's just too hard. The thing that we found... After 2008, a lot of young people expected something better. They looked at the world of big banks and said, you failed us. You, you are not to be trusted anymore. You screwed they our They actually parents. did fail, but go ahead. Well, they did, <laughs> yeah. and too big or not. And so that, that's why I think the opportunity really is right now to give the new generation a banking system they deserve. So you start with credit? Yeah. And then what? And then deposits and then everything. You need to ultimately have a place you trust to bring your money to. So what do you imagine a firm could be a completely vapor, not a vapor bank, I don't want to use that term, but a bank in the clouds? The, or the a official bank? term these days, I think, is a digital bank. A, a digital bank, bank. without branches. So you could that, also- that's, that's fairly far away. We have a right. lot to do in credit. So we've been fairly successful integrating our- Making loans making to people loans based on at, a variety of new signals, mm-hmm, correct? the merchant point of sale. Mm-hmm. And we're expanding that fairly rapidly. At some point, we will get to... So today, you can sort of very simply think of a firm as a place you trust to come and get money when you need it on good terms and complete transparency. At some point, we want to earn enough trust that you would come and bring us your money for storage. Who do you imagine are going to be the big players here? Because I've talked to lots of banks. I interviewed a bunch of investment banks, and they all say, well... These Silicon Valley companies talk about this, but they don't know how hard it is, that, that it, how really hard it is. It's super hard. Yeah. I, I am fully aware of just how hard it is having done PayPal, among other things. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not uh, under any illusions of how long it'll take and how hard it'll be, but I think the demand is genuine, and I think there's a lot of people out there that are rooting for something new and amazing to come along. I think you know, in a startup universe, a larger startup universe, I've been extraordinarily impressed with what SoFi has done. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of companies kind of in the lending space. In the lending space as well, but SoFi stands out as just someone who's really done a great job building a great product and good brand. There's a whole host of other Is people. Is that a competitor to you? Do you look at it eventually? No. The the good thing and you, you asked us right. before and I'll come back to it this way. The reason there's so much action in finance is because someone, I have no idea who, said, Hey, you know what? Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's going to take a long time, but we're just going to give it a try. Mm -hmm. And then the entire angel and venture capital universe of Silicon Valley and beyond 
said, what's the total addressable market? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. It's a trillion dollars. Right. So having 5% of this is a big deal. Is a huge deal. You, and you'll never run into it. How do you imagine the big players are going to Google and Apple, which I guess have been the most aggressive in the payments area? Um, payments different from banking yeah, and lending. Sure. But um, it's linked together in the minds they're, of They're certainly connected to one another right. in, in a variety of ways. Uh, I think they're all going to participate, but they're probably going to watch startups figure out a lot of the harder issues because they have more to lose. The really big banks have a ton to lose, including their profits, but also parts of their business that they really cannot cannibalize. Guys like Apple and Google and Facebook probably will have a thing or two to say about this market, but they're going to, I imagine, first watch what happens. They're busy with cars right now, I understand. mm -hmm. Well, Apple made a fairly strong statement with Apple Pay, and they're integrating it, and I think seems like they're they're going okay. It's a natural extension of that phone. Yeah. Your phone is going to be your wallet. Mm-hmm. I read that 25 years ago. Yeah. Somewhere. Still isn't. Yeah. Still isn't at all. I was using cash the other day, although it seemed odder and odder as you start using it, that you would have cash at all. Yeah. I'm going to finish up talking a little bit about innovation, but I, I, I would be remiss if I did not ask about your board membership at Yahoo, which you just left. You also stepped down from Yelp and what else? Um, Evernote? Every board, every board I was on, certainly all the public boards. Why I'm did you step down from all the boards? I, I get it in the case of Yahoo, there's a lot of business to be doing there. What was the impetus for you in stepping down from all of them? Just time. At some point, you feel like something is going to, as an entrepreneur, it doesn't happen to everybody, but as an entrepreneur, you get a sense for this is the one, it's the rocket ship, and you have to ride it or it's going to just toss you off. And something like that is what I felt about a firm midsummer last year. So you need to focus yourself on it. You have to give every second of your brain. And it's not as though Yahoo or Yelp took up massive amounts of physical time. Mm -hmm. They took up a lot of mental space. And Yahoo is facing some weighty issues and it's just not something that you can really commit yourself to helping figure out if you're running a company like a firm full time. And so So, I I try to help. So assess the situation where Yahoo now, everyone seems to be piling on. I was the only one piling on for a long time. But now I feel, I'm writing a piece actually saying in defense of Marissa Mayer, if you can actually believe it. I know you'll be shocked and your cereal will fall out of your mouth when you write it. But it's been a tough road for her. Certainly the, the press has not made it easier. No, right. That, that's a fair assessment. I think it's a turnaround story. Turnaround stories are rarely easy. I mean, it, every once in a while somebody comes in and says, oh, just you know, fix the awning and the water is going to stop coming in. But mm-hmm. more often than not, it's just a lot of work and a lot of extreme complexity. I think, objectively speaking, Marissa had done some pretty amazing things that she doesn't get a lot of credit for. Some things did not go to plan. Mm-hmm. Like it would be foolish of me to claim that everything she tried to do worked out. But part of a turnaround story is you have to take bets or make bets and take risks. And some things did not work out. Some things worked out. Can you talk about each one of those? Probably not. What worked then? I'll let you be nice. I can go on the Um, negative things. So the thing that she gets no credit for is when Marissa showed up at Yahoo, there was barely any mobile application, traffic, revenue, focus, teams to speak of. Right. And today, they had had it earlier. They, remember Marcus? They did. Uh, yeah, they yeah. I, I think there was some pullback, mm-hmm, to there put was. It mildly. She came in with a very clear view. The world is going to mobile. We're going to be on mobile. Your phone is going to be your primary screen. Pour as much attention and capital as we can down that particular target. And it worked. If you look at the revenue generated on mobile, search, mobile ads, it's meaningful, it's significant. It's up some ungodly number of percentage points every year well, since she's come in. That- yeah. From yeah. a base of nothing. Right. But if you're turning around a company that has a secularly declining revenue opportunity in display advertising because people are, in fact, going to mobile, you can either try to stem the tide of unstoppable 
or convert as much of your resources that are dedicated to essentially a business that is going to decline, just a question of how quickly, to a business that's going to hopefully thrive and grow very rapidly as mobile penetration increases. And I think she'd seen that correctly. She called it correctly. She hired correctly for that. She acquired some companies to staff those teams as quickly as she can. And she'd shown a fair amount of success in those areas. I think that's probably fairly non-controversial as far mm-hmm. as you know things that she's done well. So where does it happen? Where does it go? Do you have any... Do you think she'll stick with it? She's in a kind of a pickle with all the activists and everyone else. I mean, some, what I was saying in defense is that a lot of CEOs have done badly at their companies. She attracted too much positive attention and now is the negative attention's flipping to the other side. When in fact, it really is a turnaround story of a company that is secularly in, in a real problematic situation, period, no matter who got there. You know, I, the, the amazing thing about Yahoo is that having been off the board for less than a month and a half, maybe less than a month even, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> Things change fairly rapidly. Yeah. So I, I honestly don't know what will happen. Do you think the world needs a Yahoo? I do. I, I really do. I think it would be a real shame if it's chopped up into small parts and turned into revenue that math. That you bleed dry, yeah. That you bleed yeah, dry. and it, it's, it's definitely one of the options that are very publicly being discussed. But to me, as an entrepreneur, as a devotee of Silicon Valley icons. There are things that are worth destroying because a better version is available. You know, Palm Pilot went the way of Dodo because mm-hmm. it should have. iPhone got there. And it was a beautiful device while it lasted. And then iPhone came along and it was very clear what, what has to go, what has to stay until something else comes along and it'll, it'll be the, the end of iPhone. But an iconic internet brand like Yahoo that had been there way before majority of the current giants that still has a billion people that see every month because that's what they're used to seeing and having there and products that are loved anything from yahoo finance to yahoo mail i hope there's a way to find it its place in in the new world do you think she has a commitment and energy to do that she certainly has the energy yeah and she certainly has the commitment i think it's a matter of uh considering all the uh many different forces that and there are a lot of them suddenly so no more boards now um, I will probably will affirm, affirm, affirm. I, I certainly affirm my commitment to affirm. Um, I will probably join one or two private boards at some point in the future. I, I love mentoring. One of my few passions is I love entrepreneurs just because I feel extreme kinship and young entrepreneurs, people that I could help avoid some mistakes or occasionally help decide things. It's just, it's too good of a, an opportunity to sort of do something for the for the valley that nurtured me. Um, so I'll probably help, but no public boards, no boards with yeah. turnaround situations for, for <laughs> a long time. You picked a good one. Last question in that you brought that up, mistakes. Could you talk, I ask pretty much everyone, what's a mistake you made or something that you wish you had changed or or something for, to entrepreneurs? What is something that you you have corrected in yourself or would like to correct? Or uh, I'm not given to regret, so I have zero regrets of any kind. The one that I alluded to earlier, don't spend a lot of time getting yourself out of a situation where you are not passionate about what you're working on. You're always going to leave it and it's always going to have a sour taste in your mouth. It's just the question is, do you wait a year or two years or a lot longer? And I think I learned that one kind of the hard way. Building entertainment isn't my strongest suit or Mm -hmm. my passion. A similar kind of a corollary to this, if you are... There's a good one-liner. If you're thinking about getting divorced, do it now. Mm -hmm. 
it's double true for founders, co-founders. If you are looking at your co-founder and going, this is probably not going to work out, it's not going to work out. So right. just don't, don't think twice. That's actually a very good piece of advice. And very last question, what is something you've seen recently that's made you go, wow, what's the, like something, I'll end on a positive note, though it's not my nature. Be honest, I've only looked at a firm essentially nonstop yeah, you for can't the say last a firm. 12 months. You know, what's a cool it's been thing? A long if you're time. not doing a firm, what's the other thing you do? Ooh, um, I, I think a firm is some of the stuff in healthcare is really exciting. I saw a really cool sensor mm-hmm. that is weaved into fabric. So it, I, I keep on looking for sensors that actually don't suck and mm-hmm. a lot of. Sensors that don't suck. I think we'll end up. <laughs> I'd like oh. to do sensors that don't suck. I'd like to have sensors. I, I'm not a hardware guy, but uh, sensors that clasp your wrist and well, you make were just you in, feel uh, You sold Misfit, correct? I can't have nothing to do with the sale yeah, of Misfit, yeah. but I was an investor and I'm a happy beneficiary of that purchase. But uh, yeah, but I think Misfit still represents a beautiful sensor of today. The future of sensors are things that you don't really think are there. Like right. Things that are hugging your leg and because they're weaved in the fabric of your pants. All right, then we'll end on that. Your fabric of your pants and sensors that don't suck. Thank you, Max Levshin, for coming on. Thank you. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews that Peter Kafka and I have done with Ed Williams, Ariana Huffington, and Aaron Levy, just to name a few, all on recode.net slash decode. And don't miss our other podcast, Recode Replay, and our newest show, Too Embarrassed to Ask. You can find both of them at recode.net slash podcasts. One of the best ways to support our show is to help us improve. All you have to do is tell us a little bit about yourself. Take a short three-minute interview at recode.net slash podcast survey and help us by sharing your opinions on the show and how you listen to podcasts in general. The better we know you, the better the show can be. Take the survey at recode.net slash podcast survey. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Recode senior media editor Peter Kafka will be here on Thursday. I'll be back on Too Embarrassed Ask this Friday with Lauren Good and here on Recode Decode on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. This has been Recode Decode hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. For more hard-hitting interviews with insiders from the worlds of tech, media, and politics, subscribe to Recode Replay on iTunes. Featuring candid conversations with leading voices like AOL CEO Tim Armstrong, Goldman Sachs' CIO Marty Chavez, the team behind the hit TV show Empire, Shark Tank investor Mark Cuban, and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. They're all on Recode Replay.